Welcome to the Space for Magic podcast, where people who are led by their hearts come to learn the secrets to receiving all the gifts the universe has for us. I'm your host, Patty Lennon. I'm an ex-type A corporate banker turned intuitive coach. Using a blend of common sense, brain science, and just a dash of magic, I am here to help you create abundance in every area of your life and business. Welcome. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of the Space for Magic podcast. Today, I have a returning guest. I have interviewed very few people more than once, but John Rodell is, I'm so happy to say, one of those people. So I have John here with us today. And if you did not hear my interview with John almost two years ago, you are in for a treat. It's quite possible you know John's work without actually knowing it's John because one of the things that has happened to John is he is an amazing writer and poet, but his work has been used without giving him credit sometimes. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. He is um, the author of a few books and his most recent book, Remedy, is out right now. We're going to talk to him what it's been like publishing four books on his own And his work is rooted in what started out as imaginary conversations with God that he didn't actually believe was probably there to respond to him and found out that he really was. And I think his work has just, I know it's moved me personally, but beyond me, I have shared it in our communities, both the Magic Lounge and the Receiving School. And it never fails to hit deep, deep emotional buttons that people seem to be feeling at any given point in time. So with that, John, welcome. Oh my goodness, Patty, that was the nicest introduction I've ever received. And as a returning guest, I'm assuming we get some sort of smoker's jacket or some sort of like lapel to uh, so we can brag to all of our other friends that we were returning guests with Patty. That's all I want out of this. Maybe, I'd like, maybe, I'd like some sort of proof. Yeah, maybe, okay, maybe a patch. I, how about okay. a badge for your website? <laughs> <laughs> yes, how we can do that. Let's do a badge. And then I'd like something for my sleeve so I can just put it, sew it onto my jacket and let people know. Returning guest. John, with the way you run your life, I feel like maybe I should yeah. just get it as a tattoo. Like, I feel like you like to like... like you find the most painful way to do things. So I'm yes. thinking... Yeah, no, a, paint, a tattoo would be great because I lose everything else. My poor wife, um, like I, I have gone through eight wallets in the last three years. I can't out hang on to anything. So that's a good point. Maybe something that is like attached to me, like a tattoo, maybe a scar. We can figure that. We can talk offline and figure out proper ways to mark this occasion forever. <laughs> so, um, oh my gosh, I we were talking before we started recording this, and now I already have stories running through my head, and and I can't jump into the middle of them because you listening haven't heard them yet. So, there's reasons why I'm even laughing now. But I'm going to actually start somewhere. I'm going to start at the present moment, and we're going to work our way back. I have so many questions for you. But today, the day that we're recording this, you had just posted something on Facebook. I really have not been spending a lot of time on Facebook, but clearly you're one of the people I actually read because Facebook knows enough to put your stuff at the top of my feed. And it was something you shared and there was a line in it 
that really struck me for a reason. And, and I want to ask you about it, about God. So we're going to talk a little how your work, how you write your work in conversation with God. But the line was that to treat every breath as a rosary bead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that hit me really hard because my aunt lived to be quite old and she had Parkinson's for the last 20, like really bad, you know, symptoms of Parkinson's for the last 20 years of her life. So pretty much for the last 10, she was not able to do much of anything. And she was in a Catholic nursing home. And I remember one of the nuns saying that making reference that she was essentially holding on like processing other people's pain with her life and that every breath was a prayer. Yeah. And at the time, I really thought that was a crappy way to look at it. I thought (laughs) that she deserved peace. Yeah. And now having had distance and gone through my parents' death and being able to talk to them on the other side and having a whole other understanding of what our life is about – I'm curious what that meant to you and also in that particular conversation with God, what you think that meant. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. I, so I also, I, I grew up a born and raised Catholic, old school, went to a Catholic school with nuns and we were all given those little plastic rosaries, you know, on our confirm on our like first communion days and reconciliation days. And I grew up with rosaries. My mom always held a rosary. She always had one, like an emergency happened. My mom would have a rosary in her hand. It was like apparate. It was some sort of magic spell. She could just automatically materialize a rosary in her hand. And so I, I was sur- I've been surrounded by rosaries my whole life. And I never could quite have, and, and everyone seemed like they had a relationship with the rosary. Here's a very special rosary. And they'd have a story behind it. And every time someone, I would get a rosary, I was even at the Vatican once and I bought a rosary there thinking, oh, this is going to change my relationship with it. I could never quite feel anchored to it or connected to it. And I always looked at other people who I was in church with or my parents or anyone else, and they would have these rosaries and it would almost be like a tool in their toolkit or like a shield or a weapon or something like that. When times got tough, they went to their rosary. And I, it never really worked for me. I always felt like I would try to use it. And it was just an empty experience. I couldn't quite. But when I wrote this piece, I started imagining each, you know, in, in the rosary, you count the prayers and you have your fingers on the beads and you focus on that one moment, that one prayer, and then your fingers move to the next bead. And that's how I'm trying to live my life a little bit more. I have panic attacks and I get anxious all the time. But it's when I return to my breath, when I take a deep breath, and I, I always, I, I've been trying to do this now, when I, when I intentionally breathe, not just breathing to stay alive or breathing to between glasses of wine or whatever it is, I like to think of a breath as just my fingers on this bead, maybe not an intentional prayer like I'm some sort of holy mystic, but a way of grounding me and kind of anchoring me to the moment the way that I saw other people did with rosaries growing up. Mm. That's so beautiful. And um, to see it that way, and it's bringing back a conversation I had with one one of the teachers and healers I work with. Her name's Gail Gorlick. And just recently, she told me that beadwork, 
which is what essentially the rosary is, but also mala beads, was really a spiritual tradition's answer to, you know, panic and anxiety. Mm. That it really is a repetitive form of therapy. Yeah. And that it, you know, beadwork goes back as far as any ancient religion that they have documented. And I found that so fascinating because I had a similar experience to you, John. Like I would watch these people do the rosary. And I got to be honest, the reason I could never do the rosary is I could never remember the, <laughs> the sections. Yeah. If, and I was a really good student. So it was really a weird mental block I had. And I was just like, eh, I can't do it right. I'm not going to bother. <laughs> yep. Yep. And someone recently gave me a set of mala beads as a gift. And so I've been working with them. And interestingly enough, I really am having that experience with them Mm -hmm. that I remembered so many people having with their rosaries when I was growing up. So, yeah. And it's, you know, I, I would love to say that I, I'm, I'm living that and every, you know, I'm, I'm taking each moment as the sacred moment that it is. I'm not there yet in my life. I'm take. I'm kind of just trying to survive, and um, my life is often a you know a little bit of a train wreck. So I often I use breathing as a chance to when I when I notice I'm kind of untethered and I'm kind of floating in this anxious bubble, kind of just imagining I'm putting my fingers on a bead and taking a deep breath and just honoring that moment and just trying to kind of put cemented my shoes a little bit so I can kind of ground myself. And I remember I wrote that poem. I, I As I write everything, I write it from a state kind of, of emotion. I don't write analytically after the fact, like I'm doing an autism. I'm an autism, uh, doing an autopsy. I'm looking back and I'm like, well, I'm not looking back. I'm, I'm writing in the moment. And I remember writing that piece, feeling particularly kind of anxious and nervous. And it's kind of helped got me through it by writing that. Mm. You know what I find so interesting, John, about you, because you've talked openly about your, well, less about the anxiousness, but I know with the original work that you wrote to God was really from a place of just feeling hopeless or desperate or maybe depressed. Is that a fair statement? Those are great statements. Certainly desperate. Um, You know, no, uh, when I started writing these, uh, Hey God, Hey John post. It was about 2015. And you know, my background is if I, I teach improv and I like being on stage and I like making people laugh. And I found myself in about 2014, 2015, unable to even find anything remotely funny or joyful. And I was angry about it. And I was trying to draw upon my faith life growing up or draw upon, you know, all the self-help books I could surround myself with and nothing was working for me. And so I started having these fake conversations with God to try to poke fun at everything, poke fun at my faith crisis, poke fun at my where I was in life, and plus poking fun at religion a little bit and poking fun at the self-help movement, all these 15 steps to a better you that I couldn't ever get past step two. I was kind of poking fun at it all, but it was in that that I started connecting to some some magic outside of me, inside of me, wherever it is. And real answers started coming to me, but it was because I was desperate. And that's a great word that you used earlier. I, and it was in that act of desperation. And I started putting them live on Facebook for some reason I still can't explain to this day because I certainly was not part of my 
architecture for my life was never, I'm going to start being very vulnerable on social media and talking about how hard my life is. That was never something I ever wanted to do or planned to do. But the more I started accidentally doing it and putting in these little beads of truth and these little these little veins of reality and vulnerability, the more people started responding to it and the more I learned about myself while doing it. And I think I felt like I've asked you this question. I knew the answer, but now the way you're you're answering, maybe I'm wrong. Do you believe you're talking to God? I don't know. I think, I mean, I don't know. And I, I, I think part of that is also ego. I don't want to say I have this great connection to the divine that other people don't have. And look at these amazing things that God is telling me that God maybe isn't talking to other people about. I don't look at myself as like a conduit of like the only I have this or can do this. I look at it as instead of these answers coming from outside of me in some sort of like a moment of, you know, connecting to the celestial divine, it's more of like, I think these conversations with God that started very benign and silly that grew more deep and intense, the answers God was writing back to me were things that were planted in my heart at creation and at birth that I had just forgotten about. There's still God speaking, but maybe not God, hey, I'm going to come down in a dove right now and whisper in your ear in this real moment. You type out what I'm telling you. It's almost like I'm uncovering a dig, like an archaeological dig, where I'm uncovering these truths and these messages that were put there years and years ago. And that's how I feel like it is. I feel like it is divine-inspired but it's it's always been there, and I keep having to dig to keep finding more. Mm, that's an amazing way to look at it. I personally think you're talking to God, just so you know where I stand on it. Right, right. Well, I always say I don't know, and that's part of, I think, what's fun for me is I don't have, like, I told you this beforehand when we were talking off before we started recording, I am a lot like a monkey in an airliner just kind of mashing uh, controls, trying to like fly a plane. <laughs> I don't really have a plan. I don't really know what's happening. All this very much happened organically. It didn't happen because, oh, you know what? I have some really neat things I want to say. And I need to find a vehicle and a form to how to get that out to people. This all just happened without me thinking I put the cart before the horse and I just started putting these messages out there without asking, where is this coming from and what am I doing? It, those things don't matter to me still. It just matters like, am I answering the call every day to write? And it's always like, there's still stuff to dig. There's still stuff to interpret. And I just keep at it every day. You know, as you're talking, you're reminding me, I had a conversation with a friend about how I stayed inside the Catholic church for so long. And somehow it came around to, but Patty, I mean, original sin, like you can't get on board with that, can you? And my answer, and it goes to the answer you just gave is, I do, because I don't think original sin is the way it's marketed by the church a lot of times or a way it's perceived. It's original sin is the moment we forget or we're told to forget the truth about our own divinity. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. No, it's, it's this, uh, yeah, it's, we forget who we are. We forget that we were created out of love 
we forget that each of us are this unique piece of, I mean, no one like you will ever exist in the history of the cosmos ever. Your, your life, Patty, is a singular event that will never, ever happen again in this never-ending, expanding universe. There's only going to be one of you. And that information, when I, when I think of things like that, I mean, that just shows how carefully and how lovingly each of us were created, but we forget that. And we only focus on, you know, the things that we don't like about ourselves. We don't look at the artwork that's already been placed in us from the moment we were imagined. Mm. And so in a way, your your work is almost like playing the role of what baptism is supposed to play, which is excavating the original sin and getting to the truth of who we are. Yeah, I mean... That's one of the things I still struggle with. And no, nothing I ever like write about or say is from this great moment. I'm not speaking from the hills. Like, look how great I'm doing. And I'm amazing. Follow my, my path. For me, it's just a constant reminder that I have to keep reminding myself that I was made out of love. I was created out of love. Each of us were. That's the only way I can explain this entire adventure we're all on on this planet of 8 billion people. We're all packed together, but we're all here and we're all, we were all created individually and created out of love. And we, we're, the world makes us feel such shame. The world makes us, you know, there's so many, there's so many pitfalls where we can doubt ourselves and doubt our purpose and doubt our divinity and devout and, and doubt that we were made out of love. And there's so many pitfalls. And even when I write about tough things and tricky things and things maybe I'm still working through, I think maybe just for me at first and maybe now for other people, I always have to have a ribbon of, yeah, but there's still so much about you that you don't know. And you were created out of this great loving mystery. And isn't that an adventure that you can't wait to solve? And I just have to keep reminding myself that over and over. Mm, yes. Well, and especially I think because of some of the stuff that you've been through too, I would imagine it requires a lot of reminders. Yeah. And I'm I'm specifically referring to for you listening. One, what I referenced in when I was first introducing John, the way I actually found John was a work of his right at the beginning of the pandemic was getting shared a lot without attribution. And that's actually what brought us together, John. That's what I just might, I don't know, defender, like there's there's a little piece of me that just is like, just gets so angry <laughs> when good people are abused. And not that you were being abused per se. I don't think people were doing it on purpose, but like, how did you, this work of yours was being shared all around. First of all, people were actually pasting it to their walls as if they wrote it. And how did you kind of navigate that? So a couple things. One, I didn't consider myself a writer. I'm only in the last, I, even though, even after I published books, it took me a while to even admit who hey, I'm, I'm a writer because you have these sacred words that feel like these golden calves that you can't do anything with and being a writer or whatever it is, these titles, I didn't think it was worthy of me at the time. So I had written this post in 2016 and it was the theme of it is, is that you don't have to change who you are. You just have to become who you were meant to be. Like every, every we're, we're flooded with these messages like, Oh, you need to change your behavior. You need to change this about yourself. You need to 
the message of this post was this conversation between God and I, it was about, you don't really have to change. You just have to embrace who you are and embrace, you just have to become what you were meant to be. And it's not about changing your life. It's more about becoming. And so I wrote this piece and it was probably a few months before you and I talked for the first time. I just, and like I did with all my writing at the time, I didn't protect it. I just, I had this call and I still do it today. I do a little bit more uh, advocating for myself and making sure my name is attached to things and, you know, ask people to add attribution. But I posted this conversation and I just put it on my Facebook wall like I do all things. And I kind of consider it like little messages in a bottle and I put it in, I put it in the ocean and just see where it went. And then a couple months later, I noticed it was showing up to me being sent by other people. And then I started searching for it and noticing that, you know, it, it might have been changed instead of God, it was changed to Odin, or it was changed instead of God, it was goddess or whatever was or universe. Or, and I didn't have an ego about that. I, I still don't, even though, you know, I do consider myself like a real writer now, but I don't really have an ego about it. I don't get mad. I don't get frustrated. I looked at it as an opportunity to kind of chase the post around the world. And so I would search for it put some keywords in it. And then I would find it being shared, you know, at a place for a lot of people. And then I would just go and introduce myself and say, Hey, you know, this is my work. Thank you so much for sharing it. And I did that over and over for months while following it from Denmark to India to wherever it went. And I met so many amazing people. You and I met, I think, in that process. And it was just, it's been such a joy to kind of follow it and to see what that has meant for other people. And when I wrote it, I wrote it for myself. I wasn't trying to write it instructionally or give a prescription to the other people. I wrote it as like, this is how I'm going to get through the day by reading these words I'm going to type out for myself. And um, to see other people share it is even today, like I went online a couple of days ago and it's still being shared in different forms. It's still not always being attributed to me. And I still go in and I introduce myself and I just say, thank you for sharing. And 99% of the time, people are wonderful. And are great about it. And, you know, we'll add attribution and we'll have a conversation and message back and forth. Sometimes people get snooty and that's okay. But uh, so, no, that's it's been a great experience for me to meet so many people. So I'm going to tell you how I react when I see that any of your work being shared, because I can pretty much recognize it now. But I'm going to tell you what my next question is. So you can start a perseverating on the question. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, because, you know, I'll do that. You know, I'll do that. Well, you said, but I do want to share how I handle it when I see your work being shared. But then my next question is, you said, you know, I didn't see myself as a writer then, and now I do. So my question is, how did you change? How did you take on ownership of something that so many of us already saw as the truth? You know, because it's not more writing, because you know, when I saw your work, I saw you as a writer. I know a lot of people did, but you didn't feel that. And I think for someone listening, whatever happened is probably going to be an answer that they need. So that's a great question. Ponder that. And I will just tell you listening and you, John, mostly because I'm finding that People, when they find out that I can be like a really crappy person, it gives them some solace. I don't know why. I Believe me, my husband and children will tell you, <laughs> I made giant pain in the ass a lot. But um, my first reaction, which I, which I moderate, like I don't act on it, is I will cut you. If John's name 
is not at the bottom of this piece, I will cut you. That is every single time, John. It could be a friend of mine sharing it. That's hilarious. It is my, my, I'm like, it was funny just happened a few days ago. And oh, and your name is at the bottom a lot of the times. Like I would say 99% of the time now. And I'm like, it's so fascinating that I'm still having this reaction. Like it is like, anyway. No, I appreciate that. It's good to have uh, you have my back out there. No, my wife has the same way and other people. Absolutely. And I should have more of that. There is this self-advocacy part of everything. Um, I think what it took for me to kind of take ownership of this all that just kind of happened spontaneously was when I started really talking to people and when they would share, you know, I'll, I'll get a lot of messages, private messages from people saying, this is how this piece of work helped me specifically in this moment. And people with some really heartbreaking, tragic scenarios that I can't imagine experiencing. I've gone through my own share of heartbreak and difficulty and trauma, but I'll hear stories from people that really put my life in perspective. And at first I found, you know, they're, they're telling me things that, you know, I, it was hard for me to hear. I don't do well hearing, you know, positive feedback. I did grow. I think I mentioned I went to a Catholic school. It wasn't necessarily a hotbed of like a positive reinforcement. <laughs> it, it was more of a. <laughs> they did not train in positive psychology. That no, time. no, they did not. They did not use the power of positive thinking. It was more, uh, you know, avoid hell fire and, uh, you know, kind of uh, instruction. And so when people tell me these positive things, this is how your writing inspired me, my first inclination would be to try to talk them out of it. Be like, no, you know, it wasn't anything about this piece of work that I read, I wrote, it just happened to hit you at the perfect time. And I would find myself giving excuses, and maybe not saying it to anyone, but in my mind thinking, well, this is just them being very nice. And this is just someone being very kind, and doing that. But every time I did that, I was devaluing in a way their what the work meant to them. I would be like trying to poo-poo it all so much, poo-pooing myself, putting everything down to try to explain it for myself. And it has to do with my own work I'm still doing on self-esteem and self-growth and embracing who I am. I still have those moments of self-doubt. And it took me just finally just saying that's all bullshit and letting it go and just saying, you are a writer and it's not the sacred word it's not this thing that you can't achieve. It's not Mount Everest. You're, you're writing things that connect with people. And the more I leaned into that and the more I embraced that over the last year and a half, I think my work has gotten truer to me. I felt more connected to it once I finally got all this kind of fake, I don't know, fake defense system, fake. Uh, it wasn't fake humility because I really don't have an ego when it comes to my work, but I was... I was putting up all these barriers between me and readers because I didn't think I was because I refused to accept that role as a writer. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm still working on it. Uh, like I still like it, even though I wrote, I've written three books on poetry. When someone introduces me as a poet, I immediately grimace and I say, well, no, I don't wear a beret or a scarf and I don't snap my fingers. And I'm not a poet because we have this romantic idea of what poet or a poet would look like. And that's just my conditioning and upbringing that I'm still flushing out in real time. Mm. Do you feel like owning that identity as a writer or more importantly, letting go of, I, I know what you're talking about, false humility. I don't think it's that it's false. It's that 
you're efforting humility because that's what was sort of beaten into you as a small child is like yeah. be humble, right? Yeah. Like don't yeah. don't brag. So right. you're trying to almost you're humble, but you're humble as a defense mechanism because you yeah. don't want to end up in hell, you know, or <laughs> pur- yes. or purgatory, you know. Yeah. Do you think it has helped with your mental health or maybe it hasn't because mental health is obviously a chemical. Right. No, that's a, no, that's a good question. It has helped. Yeah. It has helped me because for most of my life, I'm now, you know, in the autumn of my forties, uh, my, the 50 big 50 is coming up for most of my life. I was untethered and did not have like, if someone, if I went to a high school reunion at 30, Oh, you're with your doctors. Here's your doctor friend. Here's your lawyer friend. Here's your CEO of a small business friend. Here's your person who went into the military. Everyone had a name and a job attached to them. I didn't. I never did. I, we ra- I was helping raise a child who was living with a special need. So I was a dad for a while until he didn't need me as much anymore. Before that, I helped run our family small business. But I didn't know have any kind of vocation or those like identifiers that we all feel like we need to have in our constant LinkedIn world that we live in where you need to tell people this is who we are and this is where my worth is in the world. And I didn't have anything to tell people. It's like, what do you do? Even like five years ago, I would be if I would, what do I tell them? Yes, I'm having conversations with God on Facebook as a job. That's what I do. That's my, you know, I just didn't know what to tell anyone. And I didn't know what to tell myself. So now that I've really kind of leaned into it and accepted this is where I'm at right now in my life, that this kind of garden grew up around my feet without me planning for it, it just kind of spontaneously happened. You know, I have to say, you know, my my upbringing is an improv and, you know, teaching improv. And the, the core tenet of that is yes and. You accept what the suggestion is from the audience. You suggest what's happening. You accept what's happening on stage and you just go with it and say, and what's next? So I've I've taken the improv kind of vein of this and said, yes, okay, I'm a writer now. I don't know how this happened. I don't know where it's going. But and I'm going to just keep doing it every day until it stops. And it might stop. I, I kind of look at myself as Steve Martin, maybe in a way that, you know, for a while, Steve Martin was known as just a comedian. And then Steve Martin became an actor. And then after that, he became a novelist and a screenwriter. And then he became a painter. And then he picked up the banjo and he's playing with Edie Bacall and the New Bohemians. And now he's back doing other things. But he constantly changed how, and I heard him had a quote, and I'm going to ruin the quote, but like his heart would tell him when it was time to, you know, reflect the light in a different way and to try something else. And that's what I feel like is kind of happening. I don't know five years from now. I'll still be doing this, but I'm going to say yes to it right now while it's happening. Mm, That is a beautiful answer, John. And I have a dream of you at your next reunion and on your name tag where someone else might have lawyer or doctor, you have talks to God. Yeah. That would make me so happy, John. And that would take me getting over the, you know, the, what is it? The, not shame, but, you know, just the embarrassment of like worrying about what does that mean? And people ask, you know, cause you're exactly right. What you said a little bit ago about this humility. I did grow up in a family of, you know, scientists. My dad was a pharmacist. My mom was a single room school teacher with a, you know, very, very strict with a ruler in her hand. Um, former teacher. My brother is an engineer with Xbox. Very, very scientific, quiet, quiet people. 
And I always had this kind of expressive side to me that I always was nervous about letting it out because we were a very quiet family. We were very like we would go to family parties like with the entire extended family. And I would have this inclination to get up on a coffee table and do like Jimmy Carter impressions or doing whatever I saw on Saturday Night Live like the night before. And my family would be like, you have got to keep it down. Shush, shush, shush. You know, there's other people that need to be heard from, not just you. And I think it was that, you know, well-intended. And I, I find myself accidentally doing that with my own kids at times, you know, quiet, you know, not everyone in the world is revolving around you kind of thing. But I think I took that too much to heart for most of my life is like, don't make a commotion, don't make a stir, just kind of get through things without making it all about you. And so I, I still fight that. I still fight that uh, inner dialogue. Mm. And what's so fascinating, just as you said that last line, don't make it all about you, is the reason your work is so healing for so many is because you made it about you. And by making it mm. about you, every other person that reads what you write feels less alone. That's part of the work. Yeah, that's that's true. It's and that's what happened early on that I did not see coming. I thought I was just writing these things. Like the first time I ever admitted I had depression, I had typed it out on a screen on Facebook. And it was sitting there blinking at me. I never thought about it before. I had never considered it. I had never identified that with me. It wasn't until I wrote it out and I saw it sitting there. And it took me a while, it took me a couple hours to decide whether to press publish that post. But once I did, other people sort of contact me and say, hey, I have this exact same thing. I'm going through this exact journey that you're going on. And yes, it fed so many people, and but it really fed me because I felt so alone. I live in a small town in Wyoming. We're not necessarily the hotbed of uh, you know mental health and emotional well-being in Wyoming. We're kind of a rub some dirt on it and put some barbed wire on it to get through things. And so talking about this stuff and where I lived, I felt so kind of isolated and alone. But the more I put these messages out there and put my own life out there, the more all of a sudden there was this intersection with all these other people showing up and it was like a park. And we'd all just sit there and visit and share kind of where we're at in our journey. And that's kind of how I view it now. It's I'll share part of my life, but it invites other people to come and share part of their life as well. Mm, beautiful. Well, I could talk to you forever, but I do want to make sure we tell people important things as they're getting ready to hop off their treadmills or get out of their car and go into work or um, whatever it is you're doing at home right now that maybe is time for you to go back and do something else or maybe just sit there and think about this. Where can they get your latest book, Remedy? Oh, oh, Remedy. Yes. Uh, so Remedy, I released it in November. It is um, kind of my my latest kind of poems. And so these conversations with God all were like, my writing life began with these conversations back and forth between me and God. And eventually, it all just became poetry. I'd never read poetry. I didn't write poetry. I didn't know anything about poetry until I started, it just started coming out. And so this latest collection is probably some that definitely my most personal in poetry, I was most worried about having other people read, and it's available on Amazon. Um, only, you can order; bookstores can order it, but it all goes through Amazon. So if you go to Amazon.com and you can put in John Rodell Remedy in the Amazon Master Search, and it'll show up there. But bookstores can order it. Most bookstores, Barnes and Noble has been ordering it. Um, a, a lot of independent bookstores finally can order it. So 
yeah, so that's the best place to get it. Excellent. And we'll put links to that in the show notes. And where can they find you outside of your books on Amazon? Oh, yeah. No. Uh, so uh, a very uh, creative website title, johnrodell.com. You can <laughs> you can find me there. It'll have links to books and things like that, YouTube videos and, and stuff like that. And then, um, you know, on Facebook, I have my Facebook page. I've just kind of turned into a national park. Like I, I don't, you know, people just, I just opened up my Facebook, my personal Facebook page just for whoever to come by. And so, uh, yeah, you can find me on Facebook, just John Rodell. You can search that. And I'll pop up pretty quick. And Instagram, John Rodell at Instagram too. But I do most, I, so I run my writing process. Any writer out there, don't follow this. I do all my writing on social media right away. I don't have any other programs or anything else like that. I just type everything on social media and I put it out immediately without editing or overthinking in it. And then I let the collective group kind of help me grammatically edit it after the fact. It's a great way of crowdsourcing editing. <laughs> and I and people will say, oh, no, I don't understand what this means because you misspelled it. And then I can go back and change it. But I, I do all my writing on social media and I try to do something like five or six pieces a week. Oh, so good. I love it. I love that that's the way you do it. I believe in that process, John. And John is actually going to be the front of the stage at a couple of writing events, uh, retreats. And I know you can find those on your Facebook page. I've seen yep. that you put them there. Is that the best way for people to find? Yeah. We'll put some links below in the show notes yeah. too. So for um, to leave someone with some last thoughts, I normally let people just pick what they want to say and and I'll let you do that as well. But I did have a specific ask, which is, for the person listening right now who is maybe held back through shame or, you know, quote unquote, false humility, please know yeah. that I, I know it's not false, false. Do you have any advice for stepping into, you know, just letting it go and just owning who they are? Yeah, and it's, it's going to echo a little bit what I said earlier, but you are a individual piece of art that will never, ever, ever exist again, um, never existed before. We live in, a, everything is about trying to clone each other and look the same and follow, you know, everyone's trying to march the same path. But each of us were born as this unique, singular moment. And if we hide that, if we deny it, if you don't embrace that, you're you're not only kind of cutting your story short and how boring of a story will it be if you don't embrace who you are. But the real crime of it is, is if you don't really be who you're meant to be and, and lean into that, think of all the countless lives out there of people who aren't going to get to feed off of that and to know and to see the gift of your life. And so they can find it in themselves. And that's what I tell people is I write about my experience through depression and mental health not as like an expert or anything like that, but because I think it's important for each of us to tell our story in a way that it can save the life of somebody else down the line. So me sharing how I've overcome some of my obstacles, maybe I tell it clumsily, maybe I don't tell it the right perfectly, but I tell it authentically, and maybe it will save the life of someone else down the line. So you listening, you living your life and embracing who you are and coming and not hiding your light, you're going to save the life of someone else down the line because you're going to give them the courage and permission to do 
to live the life that they're supposed to have. And it's kind of a chain reaction. It's like playing, it's tag, you know, I'm tagging you so you can, you can tag someone else down the line. And that's our responsibility for one another to help each other to embrace who we are. And the best way we can do that is to live our lives authentically. Mm. Yes. Nothing to add there. Awesome. Well, please, please, please grab John's book. His work is amazing. And we'll put all those links in the show notes. John, thank you so much for being here with me. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. Two times on the third time. We'll definitely do, we'll do live. We'll do a live video on my third time. We'll do, we'll do tattoos. We'll do like uh, synchronized tattoos or something. Yes. Yes. Or something. Or something. <laughs> or maybe just a tattoo for you. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe just like a sticker. I don't know. We'll, 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 talk, we'll figure something out. Oh my goodness. You're a love. All right. Have a great week, everyone. And um, check out John's book. Have a great day. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening. If you know someone who needs to hear this message, please share this episode with them. And if you're feeling really generous, I'd love for you to leave us a review at your favorite podcast app. It helps us reach many more people and it fills my heart with so much joy when I hear what you have to say about what I've shared. I'm cheering for your success. Have an amazing day. And don't forget, always create space for magic. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM, women's voices amplified.